I predict in about three to four weeks, we're going to see a surge of hospitalizations. And then in about a week or two after that, we're going to be seeing an increase in deaths. Welcome to the Rain Insights Podcast. I'm Emily Donahue. Today in our ongoing series about COVID-19, Rain founder David Lawrence catches up with doctors Bill Lang and Fred Southwick about the latest vaccine news and how vaccines generally work to build immunity. Let's listen in. Bill and Fred, obviously a great pleasure and honor, and I'm looking forward to sharing with our listeners uh, an update in terms of what's happened in terms of what's happening in terms of COVID-19. Bill, uh, three, four most important things that people need to know. Well, I think that in the United States, we're feeling like we're into something of a rhythm and people are are getting more comfortable with where they are, which is good because people aren't afraid as much, but it's also bad because you worry when people start getting into a rhythm, they start dropping their guard. But something important to remember is that this weekend saw the highest number of estimated cases ever in the world. So this is not worldwide, is not something that is on, uh, is, is going away anytime soon. It's still, it's still growing. And in fact, as you may know, the United States just reopened uh, international air travel uh, to the world. So we're going to be interacting more with the world again. So that, and with the world having cases go up, that's something that is of concern to me. But on the other hand, what we've seen that is when we had a peak early in the summer of deaths, it was about 2,100 deaths per day. That was actually in mid-April. We're now down to about 730 deaths a day. So while we still have significant rates of disease, we're learning how to manage the disease better, and we're learning how to protect the most at-risk people better. Well, what we really need to make sure that we're doing as we're going forward is not letting our guard down. People need to keep doing the things that they can do to prevent infections of other people, to prevent infections of yourself, and that's what's going to keep this disease rate down. So those are the two biggest things that I've got. Like We could add more later. Okay, and Fred, if I can turn to you, because college campuses are opening or trying to open, what are you seeing? Yes, and I am very concerned. Uh, Every system is designed to achieve the results it produces. And in the case of universities, they were designed to encourage interaction between students and sharing of ideas. Unfortunately, that very design increases the risk of spreading infection. And uh, we're seeing uh, in different universities, the University of Alabama, I think, is up to uh, as thousands of cases. Uh, there are a number of universities. Notre Dame had a surge. Uh, Illinois, the Illinois universities have got a lot of cases. And Florida, we're seeing an increase. It isn't the University of Florida, but it isn't as large yet. But I, I am very concerned that these infections are going to spill over to the more vulnerable community over time. And one of the ways I think this will happen is particularly freshman and sophomore university uh, students uh, interact with the senior, uh, the junior and seniors in high school. Those juniors and seniors in high school will go home and they will spread the infection to their families. As a consequence, I predict in about four, three to four weeks, 
we're going to see a surge of hospitalizations. And then in about a week or two after that, we're going to be seeing an increase in deaths. So the problem with uh, death as a marker, I mean, it's very encouraging. It's low right now. And I agree with Bill that that is encouraging. Uh, that's very delayed. And when we see there seems to be an increase in cases throughout the world, and uh, I'm worried there's going to be a new surge in Florida very shortly. We just had Labor Day. And another thing that's happened is Florida as they decide to open the bars again. Now, bars are very closed spaces. People have to leave their masks off in order to drink. When they get drunk, they talk very loudly. When there's music, they talk very loudly. These are conditions that create masses of aerosol and create uh, very big outbreaks. And there have been multiple outbreaks in the past, and I'm very concerned in Florida there are going to be some very big outbreaks as a consequence of opening bars. So we've got a lot of things coming together at a, uh, together, which could serve to be a perfect storm in the very near future. Yeah, Fred, Fred, I agree with you very much on the restaurants and bars issues. In fact, I saw some data from the CDC. Uh, there was a case control retrospective look back, and they found that looking back with these case control, that the people who got COVID were 2.8 times more likely to have eaten in the last two weeks in a restaurant 3.9 times more likely to have been to a bar or coffee house. And I'm not sure what that exactly means, but, but I think bar is, the, uh, is the, the better example. Bars, to a less extent restaurants, but certainly bars are a huge risk and places that are opening bars are going to have problems. So the themes that both of you seem to be underscoring is that while the rates are going down, our guards should not go down. And it's observing the precautions of mask wearing, social distancing, obviously hand washing, etc., that are the critical factors here. And staying out of closed spaces. Closed spaces are that are poorly ventilated. If you stay more than 15 minutes, you are at risk. Okay, Fred, that's an important point. I'm here in New York. You're in Florida. Bill is down in the Washington, D.C. area. There's a lot of anxiety around the reopening of um, schools, in particular, and offices, maybe both of you can give a quick rundown of the checklist of how you would think about safety if you were sending your child back to school or if your sons, your daughters were going back to the office place. On the, the schools, uh, we talked a little bit about this last time, but so there's some of the data on uh, Notre Dame is a very good example that they don't believe any or very, very few of the cases that they had, which is a fairly substantial number, none of them occurred related to school. They occurred related to parties um, and, and gatherings in dorms. People are able to do the right things during the day when they're in a, an official environment and, and all the mitigation controls have been put in place, but you can't control people 24 hours a day. And so it's a matter of when I, if I'm thinking about sending my children to school, I'm actually not as worried about sending them to school itself. It's everything else that's associated with school. So what, what I think that means for me is I'm not quite as worried about the younger kids because I have more of a control over their out-of-school environments. But once you start hitting high school age, and once you, definitely once you hit college age, and those people, once they're out of the classroom, who knows what they're doing? 
But in the, so the question becomes, what can we do to uh, teach them? And I think that becomes a lot of it. It's, it's teaching them really what the risks are, um, what they can do to mitigate the risks, and teaching them that the risk may not be as much to them. Yeah, there is some risk to them. But they've got to know that what they do affects the whole community and affects the at-risk people in the community. So that's that's what I would do is I, I would be teaching teaching my kids what's what's important here, in addition to the, the basics of mitigation. Another concept I think is very helpful is the concept of pods or bubbles. These are small groups of individuals that when they're together, they don't have to wear masks or socially distance because they have agreed when they're outside of that pod that they do wear masks and they're always cautious and they are not going to parties. One way to convince uh, young people not to go to parties is to create a social network where there's peer pressure to be safe. For instance, some of the athletic teams have actually, our University of Florida football team so far has had no cases because they're staying in isolation together and they are practicing when they, if they go outside, they are practicing wearing masks and using distancing and avoiding closed spaces. Great points. Uh, Fred, you touched upon the importance of uh, ventilated spaces. I can uh, speak firsthand here in New York. Uh, There's a lot of concerns that teachers have around the ventilation systems in the schools. Maybe you could elaborate a little bit on um, HVAC systems, air circulation, et cetera. Yeah, this is very important. And, uh, you know, I'm not an engineer uh, and uh, expert on air conditioning, heating, ventilation. However, the basic principles are you want the volume of air to exchange at least eight times in an hour. Average rooms are about three times per hour. And that exchange should come from outside air, not recirculated air. Now, another thing that a lot of uh, approach that a lot of people are talking about is having that air flow over UV light. And the UV light theoretically would kill the virions in the, in the micro droplets in the aerosols and therefore would sterilize the air. So I think that is also a promising approach. I have not seen proof of that concept as yet, but I think that's in the offing as well. But they've got to be careful that the HVAC systems are not being pushed beyond their design limits. You need to have the, in some cases, filtering, but bringing in the outside air is critically important, having as much air exchange as possible. But at some point when you push, and this is coming from um, ASHRAE, the American Society of Heating, Refrigeration, and Air Conditioning Engineers, if you start pushing these, these HVAC systems past their design maximums, you can actually start creating air currents that are contribute to spreading the virus within a, a single location. So the idea is is work with your building's um, HVAC uh, servicing organization to maximize all of the things that Fred discussed. You know the the airflow rates, the air exchange rates, the uh, the fil- filtration, if possible, and the inclusion of external air to the greatest extent within design limits of your system. There's been a lot of um, coverage around the prospects of a vaccine, reports out of Russia, out of China. Maybe you could update our audience in terms of how you think about the prospects of a vaccine 
and the timing of it. And then there's an ancillary question, which is, will people trust the vaccine when it does arrive? There are a number of very promising vaccines. And uh, the uh, AstraZeneca through Oxford is using an adeno-associated virus to actually express proteins of the SARS-CoV-2 genes for expression of the SARS-CoV-2. Uh, and that then is, was to creates uh, pro- proteins that the host reacts to and creates an immune response. And that has been proven to be very effective in preliminary studies. Unfortunately, they had a, a potential side effect in that one patient got what's called transverse myelitis. And that is an inflammation around the spinal cord that if uh, not caught quickly, can lead to paralysis. It sounds like uh, they treated it quickly. They decided it was not related to the vaccine. And actually in, in Great Britain, they've restarted the trials. However, they have not restarted the trials yet in the U.S. Then the other two big uh, vaccine uh, producers are Pfizer and Moderna. And both of them are using a different technology. They're using a microbeads that contain RNA. Messenger RNA is responsible for synthesizing the message, give the message to synthesize viral proteins. These microbeads are taken up by host cells once they're injected into the individual. And then these cells will use that messenger RNA and produce these proteins, which again will create an immune response. Uh, None of these methods have been used in the past for any virus, any uh, vaccine so far. The other more conventional methodology, which some companies are using, is just a heat-killed whole virus. That's a more standard approach. The problem, the worry with that is that they won't have as robust an immune response and therefore may not be as effective. But I think that's where we are right now. I think there was a a minor setback. The other interesting thing is Pfizer just announced that they want to increase their trial, the number of cases that they study before releasing it. So there may be some little signal they're seeing that is making them worried. And these are natural. This is why we do the large clinical trials, the stage three trials, uh, because there are the potential for side effects. important that you include enough individuals to exclude serious side effects so that the virus will be trustworthy and people will not be fearful of getting a side effect. Uh, Fred, what I understand on the on Pfizer increasing the uh, trial size was because they wanted to include especially uh, HIV patients and also um, older adolescents so that they had better testing on these important groups that they wanted to be able to reach out to. Um, so I'm, I'm hoping, and I, I, you may have more on this than I do, but, but I'm hoping... No, that, I, I heard the same thing. I heard the yeah. same thing. Some people yeah. are, are wondering if that's all it is, but I think that may be all it is. With that, I think the the vaccines, because these these are new technologies, that is going to give people pause. But on the other hand, the good part about these new technologies is, especially the mRNA, they're almost a self-destructing message. So once it's in and does its does its its work, it's gone. So the 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 hope is that, and the the, the science of it is theoretically that it's can't do anything more than it's what it's told to do. So if it's it's can't really have 
can't, in theory, have as many side effects. Um, but it's a brand new technology, so we don't know. Right. I would agree. I would agree. So with all that said, if you think about the prospects are highly likely that there will be a vaccine, how do you think about the popular reception to it, particularly in an environment where so much disinformation has hit consumers? There are all sorts of conspiracy theories, et cetera. Well, I, well, I think we really, what's going to be very important is there be a unified message. If we can't get a unified message from the government, from the scientists, the epidemiologists, uh, then we're in trouble. Um, we have to be consistent in our message. I think that's the key thing. And we need good advertising. There isn't a lot of trust in our society right now. And I don't know how you regain that trust. That is a serious problem, which may lead to people not wanting to take the, to receive the virus. I don't know, Bill, if you have any thoughts yeah, I think to that receive the, the vaccine. I think yeah. right exactly along those lines, the um, uh, leaders of the major vaccine manufacturers stepped up uh, last week and put out a joint statement that said that release of any or all of the vaccines is going to be science-based and it's going to be looking at safety. And so they said that jointly. You know, these are competitors, but they're also working together to solve this issue. So I think that's one thing. But to extend on what Fred said, what one of the things that really concerns me is that in many cases, it is the most at-risk populations who are most distrustful of the government, especially, and of big organizations like uh, back, like pharmaceutical manufacturers. And I, I just worry that these at-risk populations are going to be the ones that, that turn down the vaccine. Right. In particular, look, if uh, the smallpox vaccine or polio had been developed in the year 2020, we can just imagine, uh, as you know, before COVID-19 eclipsed the issue, the question about a measles vaccine was the highly controversial issue here. Uh, one thought I have, and I'd like to run past you just in our closing minutes, is uh, might this turn on who is publicly willing to take the vaccine? Well, I think there's no question that the messaging campaign and including that type of involvement in the messaging campaign can can and should make a huge difference in reaching out to people who might might be distrustful. That that implies, however, that it is a scientific, scientifically based decision and that we can all comfortably get behind this. Exactly. Trust, trust, trust. We so, have to generate trust. Uh, one other thing that's like important that for everybody to keep in mind also is this is not binary. It is not vaccine works, vaccine doesn't work. No, vaccine can be even, as CDC has said, even if it's 50% successful, you know, if, if a vaccine can decrease the death and hospitalization rate, even if it does not have, you know, totally prevent the disease, it may still be a success because that's what we're really trying to do is pre prevent morbidity, sickness, and mortality, death. And if the vaccine can do that, even if we have some people who get get sick and hopefully you know mildly sick that could still be a success uh, but ideally we want the vac we want the vaccine to do what people expect vaccines to do and that's prevent disease but we don't have to 
totally prevent to, to have a successful campaign. I, I completely agree. And the influenza vaccine in many cases doesn't completely uh, prevent the influenza, but it makes it much milder and less uh, lower, more, more, more lowers the mortality. And similarly, the pneumococcal vaccine in many cases doesn't completely prevent the, that infection, but dramatically reduces the episodes of bacteremia, that is bacteria in the blood, that are, are, they can lead to fatality. So on those final points, uh, Fred, I assume you are encouraging people to control what they can control and to take both those vaccines. Absolutely. Vaccines are one of the most cost-effective approaches to infectious disease uh, that have ever been developed. In fact, the most effective. And uh, so we really, without vaccines, uh, I I think vaccines are one of the major uh, explanations for prolongation of life, longer life expectancy in the developed world is because of vaccines. So we, we need to take all of our vaccines, and certainly influenza vaccine this year is going to be very, very important to take. Great closing note. I want to thank both of you, uh, not only for your, your participation in the podcast, but all the great work you're doing out there really in the public service. Look forward to doing a follow-up, further updating people. And Fred, Bill, thank you very, very much for your continued contributions. Thank you, David. Thank you, David. Dr. Fred Southwick is an infectious disease specialist at the University of Florida College of Medicine. Dr. Bill Lang is an expert in public health responses to biological incidents, including pandemics. Individuals and organizations turn to RAIN for risk intelligence that cuts through the hype to focus on what they need to know, what to expect, and what to do. If you like what you heard today and would like to learn more about RAIN, visit rainnetwork.com slash join. That's R-A-N-E network.com slash join. I'm Emily Donahue. Thanks for listening.